The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. Take our Bibles now, if you would, and open them to 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse number 16. That is our text verse, and like I say, sometimes the jumping off point for our discussion of what we'd like to talk about this evening in these next few messages. We're talking about biblical discernment. How can we live for Jesus? Well, one way that we can do it is by wisdom, the wisdom of understanding Scripture. Paul said to his young protege, Timothy, Take heed unto thyself and unto the doctrine, continue in them, for in doing this thou shalt both save thyself and them that hear thee. I think for many people, doctrine is a, is a scary word. It's almost a bad word for some people because they just don't like the amount of thinking that you have to do to have a theological discussion on things. Churches are far less theological than they used to be. And our own Baptist churches are, are guilty of that as much as the rest. But if there's any, anyone who ought to be strong in this area, we ought to be leading the world in the discussion of doctrine. It should be Baptist people because it is to us that God has committed the doctrines of the faith and keeping those doctrines until Christ comes again. Now, among the Baptist, independents are... Well, it should be the cream of the crop, but sadly, independent Baptist churches are often the very worst. We lag behind others in theological acumen. Uh, much of that has to do with Bible colleges, Bible colleges that pass for barely more than advanced Sunday school classes. Doctrine shouldn't scare us. We ought to relish it. We ought to want it. We should ask for it from our preachers. We should demand that the preachers of the Word of God hold our feet to the fire over our doctrine. And that's very important for us to know, because knowing the finer points of the Scripture teach us more about the God that we know and the, and the wonderful salvation that God has given us. I don't think there's anything better um, than studying the Word of God and then seeing a person who's been struggling with the Scriptures suddenly say, now I get it. That there's a light that goes on and they just brighten up because they receive understanding of the Word of God. I mean, a teacher of the Word uh, really delights to hear that when someone says, Now I understand. And I don't think that there are people in churches that say that very often anymore. And they don't because nobody's really given them anything that's very hard to understand. Uh, they're, not, they're not talking about the doctrines of the faith, deep doctrinal spiritual things that challenge people in their thinking. But instead, the church is a social club with Starbucks coffee and Krispy Kreme donuts and messages that are about friendship and finances and seminars and next to nothing, really, that motivates people to find out about the God who is the very reason that we go to church. Now, I know this to be a fact that sometimes there are people that come to Berean, uh, visitors that come here, and they leave, and they don't come back, and they don't come back because they don't understand the messages. Now, what I have to say on Sunday mornings is pretty basic stuff, even though there, there are some things there that you need to listen to and, to and to apply, some things that I hope that'll make you think. But most people aren't used to going to church and being led through the Scriptures 
uh, on a journey to find out what we believe and why we believe certain things. The scriptures are too much amazed for them, and they just don't want to go through the trouble that it takes. And folks, it is really a sad state of affairs when Christians are theologically, theologically confused by doctrine, and so they just turn away from it. Now, we ought to praise God when the preacher has more to say than how long their hair should be and how, or how much hair you should have on your head or how long or short a skirt should be. You ought to thank God that there's more in the sermon than hitting people on the fingers with a ruler because they don't match the church dress code. Now, we do need things like that. We need to be taught things like that. We need, we need to shape up on some of those things, but we don't need to hear that 52 sermons a year. And to make that the only thing that we ever talk about. Now that kind of, of message and the constant thing about Christian standards has kept people in ignorance of the great doctrines of the faith. And consequently, people can be sucked in by all kinds of foolish interpretations of Scripture. And they are because they haven't been taught anything. And so they tend towards untenable positions about salvation, the call of the Holy Spirit, the work of Christ in the atonement even a correct view of the Bible itself. Now, 13 years ago, right after I'd become the pastor, I, I preached a series of sermons that drove people out of the church. And those of you that weren't here, you might say, well, what in the world were you preaching? Well, I was preaching that nefarious statement of faith of the Berean Baptist Church. And there were people who didn't understand what that meant. And they didn't like what I was teaching. And so... They, they left the church. And all we did was just, all I did was just preach our statement of faith that has historic Baptist confessions of doctrine in it, the statement of doctrine, and people just didn't like that. They didn't understand what it meant. And so aren't we in a sad, sad state of affairs when we adopt an historic confession of faith and uh, it's something that we profess to understand, but we don't really understand it? Now, thank God for this. Many of you have stayed here all of this time, you've gotten grounded on it, but there are others that left to enjoy their, their bliss of ignorance. Ten years ago, I might not even have talked about this or said anything about it, but now that I'm 14 years into the pastorate, I, I think that I can talk about it now. And we can all see after these many years, I think, what a difference that's made in the way that we think, how we view the world, how we view God. It's just a completely different mindset set, and that, that thinking has made us stronger in the Scriptures. I was talking to Jason Guritz after a service last month, and, and uh, we were reflecting on that time long ago, and he said, we didn't really lose anybody. He said, they just left. Then he quoted from 1 John chapter 2, verse 19, where it says there that they went out from us because they were not all of us. And when John said that, he was inferring, well, not inferring, he was stating that people left under his teaching because they weren't truly saved. They weren't actually true believers. Now, I'm not going to go that far because you don't have to agree with everything that I say uh, to be a Christian. I mean, everything that I teach is not a salvation doctrine, doesn't have salvation implications. But at least I can say this, I think this would be true, that folks that left here uh, not believing the things that were in that statement of faith are guilty of very poor doctrinal discernment. Not one of them took the time to sit down to discuss where our statement of faith is in error. Now, whether we like this or not, this is what John said in 1 John, that that is one of the markers that determines the faith of true believers. 
What does a person do when he hears the truth? Does he listen to it? Does he accept it? Or does he reject it? Now, I'll leave that to people with different opinions about whether they are unbelievers or whether they're just believers that are guilty of poor doctrinal discernment. But we have other matters to attend to. It used to be that preachers gave theological discourses in Sunday morning sermons, and people listened to them, they heard them, and they learned from them. There weren't many people that had to leave their church in order to get a theological education, to get training from some other place. I mean, they could sit in their church and hear good Bible doctrine. Now, this remarkable statement was made by John Gill in his body of doctrinal and practical divinity. He said, pastors should be chosen from the membership of the local church. Now, what he's talking about there, there should be enough training in our churches that we don't have to go outside to look for the pastor, that we choose them from people that are within the church. And he said, we don't really need to go out here and scour the Bible colleges to find somebody to preach in our churches. It should come from among us. So the logical place to find a pastor for the church is among people who who they know, uh, the, the, pastor, the pastor will know them, and, and he's close to them. And the key to that is to provide enough grounding in the doctrines of Scripture so that men can learn enough to teach the Bible and become preachers of the gospel right here in our congregation. I, and I'll have to tell you this, that some of you men, you really ought to be taking notes so that you can remember some of the things that are taught here. So that if you're... You're, you're asked questions about thing, you, things, you know how to answer those questions. We should be learning something. Now, I think we could all agree with this, that, that Bible churches came before Bible colleges. Rabbinical schools were not Bible colleges. Roman universities were not Bible colleges. And so the only place that the churches could go to find somebody to pastor the church is where? Right there in the church. People that they raise up, that they train. In fact, we have these exact instructions from Paul to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2. He said, And the things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. Now at that writing, Timothy was not an itinerant preacher like the Apostle Paul. He most likely was the pastor of the church at Ephesus. And one of, the, one of, the, one of those days... Timothy was going to be too old. Timothy was going to die. And who was going to take his place? The only ones that could would be someone who's trained up in that church to be able to preach the gospel of Christ. In his letter to Titus, Paul told him to ordain men in each city. And he meant from the local churches. Ordain men from those local churches who had been taught by the leadership of the churches. That's where our pastors need to come from. Now, what, I, what I'm trying to say is this. If, if the preaching from the pulpit is weak and it's watered down and it has no substance, then people are not going to learn anything. People need more than uh, sermons that are about Christian standards. I mean, that, that's a biblical topic. We do need to hear about that. But that can't be the only thing that we teach. Certainly, it's not the major thing that we teach. We need standards for sure. We need holiness in our church, absolutely for sure. But holiness can only be supported by what we know about the God that we serve. And so when you talk to many people about holiness, they haven't been grounded in the faith. They don't even know what you're talking about. 
And so if that happens, a plea for people to be holy, holy that, that ends up being the legalism of manufactured holiness. Now, many churches don't care about holiness, whether it's legalistic or otherwise, but they just don't understand this. And many people are lost when you talk about holiness because they just don't know what holiness looks like. And for all the preaching that's done in so many churches on, on Sunday mornings and Sunday nights, the legalist himself really does not understand what holiness is. Well, cleaning up the outside, that's not going to help the inside. How do you get the inside right? Well, there's only one way. That is, you've got to know the doctrines of God's Word. You, you have to know what Scripture says. That's, get, that's what gets our thinking turned around and going in the right direction where God is. I've told you um, that uh, my daughter Clarissa and her husband Jason have been looking for a new church. I think they have found one. Uh, I talked with her just the other day, and she told me uh, she's, she's been in an independent, fundamental Baptist church. And she told me that it was so good to finally hear a sermon that was more than just a bunch of stories. She said it was so good to hear a, a good, clear Bible exposition. And then she said that she went to a, a Bible class in this church where she's attending, and she said the people could actually carry on an extended conversation about justification. And then she told me, she said, you ought to hear the conversations in this church. It's not about people. They don't sit around and talk about each other and what's happened to them and all their problems. He said, that, the conversations that you hear going around the church are about Christ. Everything's talking about him. And she said it was such a change from what she was used to. Well, it's strange how things work out. The, the very day that I was working on, on this sermon, I received a letter from Ligonier Ministries, and I'm discerning enough to know when to listen to them and what things to, to shut out. But this letter that I received had some really good things in it, some things that are worth repeating. So let me, let me quote from the letter. And uh, this, this, is what the, this is what the letter said. If we neglect essential matters and spend time on issues that, while important, are only symptoms of the doctrinal disease that afflicts the church, we do a disservice. What are the central errors of faith and practice afflicting the church today? Anemic, man-centered worship? A lack of fervor for the glory of Christ at home, in the church, and in the workplace? Surrender to the culture on sexual morality. All those problems must be addressed, but they're symptoms of the real problem, a faulty view of Christ. Wrong ideas about Jesus affect gospel outreach everywhere. The American church has done much good, but it's also exported false teachings to every continent. Christology, or the doctrine of Christ, is the core concern of the church. In fact, the church exists to proclaim the person and the work of Christ, to teach people who Jesus is and what he has done. If we get that wrong, the body of Christ will be ineffectual and subject to countless other errors of faith and practice. That is essentially the very same thing that I'm trying to relate to you. Getting the faith right is the same, and getting doctrine right is the same as getting Christ right, because he is the faith. Grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. Now, I read that statement, and my attention was uh, drawn to a particular thing that he said that really struck a familiar chord in my experience. Sproul said, the American church has done much good, 
but it's also exported false teaching to every continent. Now, that statement was so familiar to me. I mean, I, I know that Sproul was, was uh, broad in his meaning, and I think mostly he was probably talking about the charismatic movement and how that's taken the world by storm. And so his ministry and that of John MacArthur have been beacons against that kind of heresy around the world. But I also know that he was, he was speaking of something that I heard in a conversation with the mission rep when I interviewed Wilson Maongo to become our missionary. Now, you've heard this story, but it works here, and so I want to tell it to you again. I asked Brother Maongo about the doctrines of grace and whether he believed them, and he said yes. And he acted surprised that I asked him, and I said, well, how did you come to that conclusion? And again, you've heard the story before. And he said, he was surprised, and he said, I read the Bible. And, and the mission rep said the very same thing that R.C. Sproul said in that, in that letter that I just read. He said, there, there would be none of the native missionaries who did not believe the doctrines of grace if Arminianism had not been exported by Americans. And then he said, this is, this is the common experience. When these men read the Bible without predisposition... They believe the doctrines of grace. Now, folks, this is why we question missionaries very closely. What we don't want to do is to export the very same doctrines that have gummed up the American church. So we're careful about what our missionaries teach on the other side of the world. We want them to teach the right thing. And they might be good on a lot of things, but they need to be right on this. We don't want that stuff to be exported around the world for people to be confused on this thing. Now, do you remember that when uh, Pastor Wilson was here uh, this last time that we gave him those study Bibles? I mean, the people, uh, the men from his institute didn't have materials, and so we gave them those, and we saw the pictures a couple weeks ago where each of the men had received his new study Bible. And uh, for them, good resources are hard to find. So the time before last that, that Brother Mongo was here, uh, I took his computer, he gave me that, and I just loaded it up with all kinds of resources, actually thousands of resources that we had electronically that he was able to use because he just did not have anything for study. And my point here is to tell you that when you don't have a predisposition towards things and all you do is read the Bible, you can't be surprised that a man who reads only the Bible is going to come to the right conclusions. The, the apostles wrote this, and they wrote this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He inspired them. Paul made those doctrines clear in Ephesians and in Romans and in Second Thessalonians. Peter did the same in his writings. And then who else talked about the very same things? Jesus did in the Gospel of John. I mean, the Gospel of John, it's just replete with these teachings. And what you have to do, if you just shut your mind to all the predispositions there are out there, you concentrate on what is said in the Scriptures alone, in the comprehensiveness of the whole, you'll find out that what I'm saying to you is true. You will get the meaning, and you will come to the same conclusions of the doctrines that we teach. Well, my sermon's about half over now, and I haven't actually gotten to the main part that we're studying. Uh, but all these comments I wanted to make, because I think they're pertinent to uh, this study of doctrinal discernment. We have to get this right in order to be a church that's strong in the faith. And if being strong keeps us small in numbers, then so be it. We don't want to be a mega church without the mega truth. 
Now, getting back to our subject at hand for just a few minutes that we have left, um, we've been studying the distinction in the doctrines of the church that make us Baptist. And there are many, many Christians around the world, of course, and not all of them agree with us. Uh, not on all points of Scripture, of course. And, um, and yet the world over, there is one group that is remarkably consistent in Bible interpretation, and that is the Baptist. Now, it's not because the Baptists are the only ones that are consistent, because others are as well. Roman Catholics are to some degree, Presbyterians and Lutherans and so on. Their doctrines also define them. In many cases, their doctrines separate them from other groups. But the most important thing about Baptists is how long that we've been consistent in our doctrine and why we are consistent. Now, Presbyterians have been consistent since John Calvin. Lutherans have been consistent since Luther, where... Well, really, to find a Lutheran that understands Luther anymore is a hard, hard challenge. But uh, they have some consistency. It goes back to Luther. Catholics are a little bit harder to nail down because their doctrines are evolving, and they have since Constantine. Uh, they don't believe in the absolute authority of Scripture, but they do believe in authority. Whatever the Pope says at the moment, that's the truth for them. And so they have some consistency of belief for at least the moment. But Baptists are different. We have time-tested truths. We have, time, we have truths that are rooted in the first century church. And it's not just me that claims that. Historians of other denominations agree with that. And I use the word denomination if you, uh, to uh, apply to us very loosely. Um, they, they agree that there were Baptists present in every century since the time of Christ. And there's a reason for that. It's because Jesus began the church. And, and because he said the church would not stop, he promised there would be a perpetual church, and so those doctrines that he gave and the apostles gave must still be here. We've, we've discussed that point. Now that leaves us then with the investigation of doctrine and checking out things that distinguish us biblically from the rest. And on this point, we have history on our side. But history is not enough. Heresy can be very old heresy. It doesn't get better with time. So we have to have more than history on our side. We have to know, do we agree with the Bible? Is what we teach what the Bible says? So our method has been, in these last couple of weeks that we've had so far, is to look at the Baptist acrostic. And each of these letters stand for a doctrine that distinguishes us. Some of them are held by others, but none of them have been held in their entirety for 21 centuries, except by people that are Baptist. Now thus far we've covered biblical authority, and I won't go back into that for sake of time. Secondly is autonomy of the local church. And we left off there the last time as I, I was explaining the terms of church government, the form of church government that we have, which is congregational. And we talked about uh, how that no one has any authority over us, no outside authority is over us. And I contrasted that to other theories of church government, such as the prelatical and Presbyterian forms. And um, the point that we're, we're dealing with right now is that the biblical model is congregational polity. The membership of the church governs its own affairs. So there isn't anybody outside of this church that governs this body at 6298 Country Club Drive. Now, in the New Testament, the apostles ruled churches on many decisions because the church was still developing its doctrine. 
Uh, Jesus gave the apostles the responsibility of directing the church and giving them doctrines. Their office is the highest office that was ever in the church. That's the, the office of apostleship. And Jesus gave them authority over all of the churches. And when the Bible was completed, the instruction manual for churches was done. And when the apostles died, their office was done. And then the authority of the church reverted to the individual churches under their leadership. The congregation became the, 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 the congregational polity became the government of the church. There's no outside bishop that reigns or has rule over several churches. Now what we did last time was to start looking at uh, examples of the church controlling its own affairs. And so we had time to look at one example. That was in Acts chapter 1. Now, unfortunately, because of my foray into other things in the beginning of the message, uh, we won't have much opportunity to go a lot further than that. But let me remind you of this example. It was in Acts chapter 1 when the apostles selected another man to replace Judas in his apostleship. We talked a little bit about that in the morning message as well. So a choice was made by the vote of the apostles and possibly of the 120 who were members of that first church that they met just before or at the time of Pentecost. And um, they had a democratic vote, and they made a decision. Now, interestingly, Acts chapter 1, verse 24, shows that the Lord guarded that vote, and the choice was made by God's will. And I think that teaches that when we pray as the apostles did and as the church did over the selection of this one who was to replace Judas, when we pray like they did, God is going to guide the choice. The choice that's made will be the right choice. And for the few minutes that we have left, I want to give you just a couple more examples. And I apologize, we're not going to be able to finish authority tonight. There, there are a couple of other important things that I want to talk to you about uh, regarding this. So I'm not going to hold you very long here, uh, and I promise next time the introduction to the message won't be a, a Bible conference. We'll try to get right into it. So let's go, if you would, turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 6. And uh, in this chapter, we read about the first deacons. Open your Bibles there, and we want to read the first six verses in Acts chapter 6. Acts 6, verse number 1. And in those days... When the number of the disciples was multiplied, there arose a murmuring of the Grecians against the Hebrews because their widows were neglected in the daily ministration. Then the twelve called the multitude of the disciples unto them and said, It is not reason that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Wherefore, brethren, look ye out among you seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business." But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And the saying pleased the whole multitude, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Ghost, and Philip and Prochorus and Nicanor and Timon and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch, whom they set before the apostles, and when they had prayed, they laid their hands on them. Now, notice that the apostles instructed the church about the choice of seven men who would take care of a problem that they didn't have time to deal with. Now, the apostles wanted to devote themselves to, to preaching, teaching, and to prayer. And like pastors everywhere, there just isn't enough time to do everything that needs to be done. And so they needed some help with this. So they instructed the church to go find these men who they would appoint to be the deacons. And 
They told them to deliberate about it, to make that decision, who would serve the church. So a discussion was, was, was held and qualifications were examined. And among the thousands of people that were in the church at that time, there were seven men that were voted on to fill these positions. And so, so the apostles went and they laid hands on them to confirm uh, the choice of the congregation. Now let me just mention this, uh, that that is where we get the practice of deacon ordination. Laying on of hands is a sign of approval. The church made its selection. Ordination is that selection. The vote is actually the ordination. The laying on of hands is a sign of approval. It's the ceremony of induction into the office. So the apostles ratified that vote by laying on of hands. Now, it's interesting that the practice of ordination has changed from what it was. In most churches, it has changed. It really hasn't changed in our church. Uh, what people do today is not really according to the scriptures. Uh, I want to emphasize this again, that the ceremony is not the ordination. Uh, did you know that Charles Spurgeon, who was the most prolific preacher since the time of the apostles, never had a formal induction, a formal ceremony into his office as the pastor? But he was voted on by the people. That is his ordination. Now, since we're on this subject... Um, a little instruction is good for us here because this also has to do with the autonomy of, of the local church. Uh, the pastor, choosing a pastor, is a church decision. We do not practice denominational ordination. Now, the usual procedure that's used by many is to call together an outside group of pastors that serve as a, as a council to question the one that the church has chosen for ordination a few years ago, I sat on the ordination council of my good friend Johnny Sloan, and there were many pastors that were called together, and we participated in the ceremony. And when the questioning was done, the pastors voted, and we agreed that his knowledge was sufficient, that he should be ordained to the ministry. So when it was all said and done, we signed the ordination certificate, and we had the laying on of hands. But the authority for that decision did not rest in that council. None of us that were on the council was part of that church. We were outside pastors from other churches. We had no authority there. It's the local church that had the authority. So what they could do is they could accept or they could reject our recommendation. We could have said, we think that this man should not be ordained to the ministry. And they could have said, well, sorry, we're going to ordain him anyway. And that would be their right because they have the authority. Now, the point is that authority does belong to the church. The decision rests upon the vote of the people. And when they vote, that is the ordination. And then when that vote is taken and it's approved, then you have the ceremony of induction, which is the laying on of hands. Now, that means that it's not proper for a seminary to ordain anyone to the ministry. And yet that's often done today. Seminaries can't ordain people to the ministry. That is a church decision. That's to be done in the local church. So we've practiced this as Baptists. We have practiced church vote for ordination. And from the beginning, we've stayed that way while there are others that have gone off into different ways and have different practices. Well, let's look at another case and we'll be done. Let's go to the 13th chapter of Acts. And in this chapter, we have the selection of missionaries. Acts chapter 13 and verse number 1. Now there were in the church that was at Antioch certain prophets and teachers, as Barnabas and Simeon, that was called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene, and Manaen, 
which had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch and Saul. As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Ghost said, Separate me, Barnabas and Saul, for the work whereunto I have called them. And when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. Now here we have another church decision. Interestingly, the apostles that were in the church at Jerusalem didn't have anything to do with this decision. There were no representatives from the Jerusalem church that had gone to Antioch to help them to choose who these missionaries would be. And it's interesting that if Peter was the pope of the church, that most certainly he would have gone to Antioch to oversee the choice of the greatest missionary that ever lived. The missionary that would win more people to Christ and establish the church in all the known world at the time. And of course, that is the Apostle Paul. It was the Antioch church that made the decision. And we notice once again how it's made. The Holy Spirit spoke to the leadership of the church, and the Holy Spirit said, separate these. These are the ones that I want to choose. These are the ones that that you need to appoint to the ministry, ordain them. And so the Spirit was working through the church. He wasn't working apart from it. And that's the way that the Lord always works. He works through the local body, through the leadership of that body. And as the leadership of this church, we are very well, well capable of making our own decisions. We govern our own affairs. We are a church under the headship of Christ alone, so we don't need prelates and bishops on the other side of the world to tell us what to do. Now, I could go on. We don't have to call anyone to ask if we can change the church pens. We don't have to get approval from anyone to change the color of the auditorium and paint it a different color. If we decide we're going to build an addition on the church, we have the authority to do that. We don't have to ask anybody. Well, actually, we do have to. We have to ask the bank, and we have to ask the almighty county of Sonoma to give us a permit to do it. But we make the decision that we want to do it, and then we pray to those higher authorities that they will grant us a permit so we can build. So still you might wonder about this, though. How does the church actually operate? What goes on here? How do we actually operate? In the final analysis, it's one person, one vote. The deacons have one vote. The pastor has one vote. And so the congregation as the whole rules. Well, let's talk about the practicality of how all that takes place. Um, And this is how it should work. And that is the church operates under the headship of a strong pastor. The pastor is responsible for the oversight of the flock. And this is not a mistake in the Bible. This is done with purpose, that the Bible calls the people in the church sheep. They have to be led. You can't push or pull them. They have to be led. And that's the pastor's responsibility. That pastor, of course, is chosen by the people of the church. Now, although I do believe in a strong pastorate, I don't believe that the pastor of the church ought to be a dictator. I absolutely do not believe that we need a Baptist pope to tell us what we are to do. And many pastors are that. They're the lord of their little fiefdom. And they just rule everything. When that's exactly what the Bible says they should not be. First Peter 5. Feed the flock of God which is among you, taking the oversight thereof, not by constraint, but willingly, not for filthy lucre, but of a ready mind. Neither as being lords over God's heritage, but being examples to the flock. So I very strongly reject the independent, fundamental Baptist model where the pastor controls everything from the money to the missionaries to the paper clips. 
I don't think that we ought to operate that way. Now, on the other hand, though, you ought to trust the pastor. If you have a good pastor, you ought to trust him. If he's proved himself, then trust him. You agree, as members of the church, to submit to his leadership. And a pastor ought to be wise in how he uses his authority. So normally, this is what would take place. When I advocate for something, or I advocate against something, in almost all cases, in the normal situations, you ought to take my advice on that. We can't always be butting heads with one another. That just raises problems, causes trouble in the church. And so, for the most part, you agree with the direction that the pastor wants to go. In fact, if you want to read the bylaws it'll, of our church, it'll tell you, and we think it's biblical, it'll tell you that's the way the church operates. So both sides, though, have to be willing to be flexible on functional matters of the church. And, and usually, a good pastor is not going to insist that everything in the church has to go his way. Now, in our church, we have a board of deacons, but the deacons don't run the church. There is no, there is no scripture for that. There is no authority in the Bible for deacons to run the church. However, there's wisdom in the multitude of counselors. And that's the way the deacons work in relation to me. The deacons don't control the pastor. And so if anything goes wrong, you can be sure of this. They will get the blame, but they don't actually run things around here. Uh, and they can attest that we have meetings, and we have a meeting every month. I don't push my way, uh, although they understand that I have the authority to veto decisions that are made there but they I, I think that they'll be honest about that and they'll say we discuss things we come to mutual decisions on things and uh, I think that's the way it ought to be done but the ultimate authority for things that we're going to do is going to rest with me and then comes back to the to the church as well so you never want to say to the deacons something like this do something about that pastor because they don't have the authority to do that constitutionally biblically they don't have that kind of authority now, each of you, then, has as much authority as a deacon. But that doesn't mean that you can sit in on the deacon's meetings. And that doesn't mean that you are authorized to do what the deacons do. And that's because the Bible gives spiritual qualifications for that office. And we didn't invent those. The Holy Spirit gave those to us. And so our deacons, then, become our, or they, they are, trustworthy men. These are men that we look to. We count on their wisdom. I count on their wisdom and their counsel in the decisions that we make. And I think that is appropriate and biblical. So the Baptist church is not really the only church that believes in congregational polity. But that is one of the tenets of the Baptist church. We do believe that is the biblical form of church government. That's one of the things that defines us as Baptist. Next time we're going to talk a little bit more about autonomy. And uh, we'll come back to this and I have some more important things that I want to talk to you about concerning the authority of the congregation, the people of the church. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Berean Baptist Church. We thank you, Lord, for the work that you've given us to do here. We thank you for your people, Lord, that want to serve you and, and want to do what you've told us to do in carrying out your commission, uh, keeping the doctrines of the faith in the forefront, being strong on those things, using the wisdom of discernment in the things that we believe. We thank you, Lord, for those who serve in the church, our, our deacons. Thank you for 
uh, giving them to us and the job that they do and the respect that uh, ought to be had for our deacons. We just thank you, Lord, for that. Thank you for the people of this church that uh, make pastoring much, much easier on me than it is for a lot of pastors. I do appreciate that so much, Lord, that we have good people in our church that want to hear the word of God. And, Lord, uh, we just... Um, so thankful for it. We ask, Lord, that you'd bless us as we leave here tonight and as we study about these things about uh, Baptist and why we're Baptist. We do believe, Lord, that you started the church and we're still holding on to the doctrines that you gave. And we want to continue to do that. Help us to stay in the truth of your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronan Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Rohnert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.